0: Good morning. This morning's reading is coming out of the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 to 18. If you are using the Blue Pew Bibles nearby to you, it is page 985. Again, it is the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the world to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities, remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for your word, as it was just read to us. We pray now for your spirit to come and minister to each and every one of us through your word, through his power, opening up our hearts to receive by faith your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we've come to the close of our sermon series through the book of Colossians. We have been calling this series Gospel Prime because whatever is considered prime is of first importance. It's preeminent, it takes first place. And that's really been the emphasis here in the letter to the Colossians it's been about the gospel namely the person and work of Christ Jesus and how the gospel is of prime importance. And that preeminence we assign to Christ should be made manifest in the life and priorities of every church. In other words, that it, it should be so clear through um, our words and our life together, it should be so clear to those outside the church that the gospel is as precious and as valuable to us as the air we breathe. That without the gospel, we would be dead. We would be without hope. Now, as I said before, the gospel preached, the gospel lived out in all of its truth, beauty, and goodness, ought to be really the honey and glue of the church. It should be what we depend on to attract people to come to our church, and it's also what we should depend on to bind people together in community here in this church. I think we're too prone to rely these days on just natural affinities and special interests in order to be our honey and glue. In their book, The Compelling Community, Jamie Dunlop and Mark Dever make the case that the attractional church paradigm fails to recognize and to release the power of the gospel in a church's life together. While not denying the truths of the gospel, attractional churches minimize the power of the gospel to attract and to unite a disparate people into one body. Maybe you've never heard of that term before, the attractional church, but I think you're probably familiar with the attractional mindset. It's, it's in churches that have this mindset. It's, it's where the gospel, it's not so clear if it's prime. The, the gospel's still there, It's still considered important, but for one church, partisan politics is prime, while for another, a a particular program or curriculum is prime, and for another, a upper-middle-class family-centric lifestyle is prime, and for another church, it's this or that theological distinctive or social agenda that's prime, whatever the case it means that this or that church is relying not just on the gospel, but on the gospel plus this or that emphasis in order to attract people and bind people like honey and glue. Now, let's be clear as we're, as we're critiquing this kind of mindset. Let's still be clear though. We should commend Any church that holds to the gospel and desires to attract people, it is is good, it is right for any church to want to give off a compelling witness to the world. But the question is, what are we ultimately relying on for that compelling witness? We've got to be careful not to adopt the mindset that minimizes the power of the gospel to attract and bind people like honey and glue. Because I'm all for attractive churches. I want HCC to be an attractive church, but not because of, of any improvement or extension to our building, not because of any particular program or event we offer, not because of any natural affinity or, or special interest that we share. I'm only interested in gospel attraction, where our preaching And the lives of our people are distinctly shaped by the gospel, where the gospel is saturated within our life together. That's what Paul's letter to the Colossians really has been all about. He spent the first two chapters laying out the gospel, the last two chapters now applying the gospel, threading it between all of the relationships that you would typically find within a church. So all the relationships between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, husband and wife, parent and child, all these relationships are transformed and tied together by the gospel. Now for those of you who aren't so clear as to what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, according to Colossians, says that everyone is a sinner in need of redemption and forgiveness. That's, that's our identity in the flesh. We all share that. But through his blood shed on the cross, Jesus made peace and reconciliation between God and man. He triumphed over sin, death, and the devil at the cross, putting them to shame. And now, by grace, through faith, sinners are transformed and sinners are given a new identity hidden in Christ, by grace through faith, we are delivered from the domain of darkness and we are transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That, according to Colossians, is the gospel. That's the gospel Paul has been making prime throughout the letter. And now he concludes his letter by exhorting the church to maintain a very clear and compelling gospel witness to the outside world. He wants churches, he wants the church of Colossae to be attractive, but to be attractive in the right way, the gospel way. Now that's going to mean adopting a few practices if we're going to give off this compelling witness. And that's what we're going to see in the remaining verses of chapter 4. So if you're following along with me, you can look in your bulletin, there's an outline. And there are three practices for us as a church to adopt to give off this compelling, attractive witness, first, make a practice of talking to God about people. Second, make a practice of talking to people about God. And third, make a practice of reaching people with people. So let's consider this first practice for us as a church to adopt make a practice of talking to God about people. This obviously is about prayer. We see this emphasized in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So there's clearly an idea of persistence here, of being devoted in prayer, of of persevering in prayer. That word for continue steadfastly is used again by Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where he says to be constant in prayer. Now, Interestingly interestingly enough, he actually uses that same word again a few verses later in Romans chapter 13, verse 6, when he describes how governing authorities are constant and steadfast in attending to the collection of taxes. So just as they say, there are only, only two constants in life, death and taxes. Well, for the Christians, we would add prayer to that list. Prayer should be a constant in the Christian life. And that's the example that was set for us by the early church. In Acts chapter 1 verse 14, we read that the first Christians were, with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. That word for devoting, that's the same Greek word as found here. With one accord, they continued steadfastly in prayer. Now, I know that sounds beautiful, sounds inspiring, but Really, what does it actually look like? Uh, how constant is constant? Uh, how steadfast should our steadfast prayers be? Are we talking about every hour, f- five times a day, like, like in some religions? Uh, every time we sit down for, for a meal, at, at least once in the morning, or, or maybe once before you go to sleep at night? We, we want to know what the expectation is in, in measurable, quantifiable terms. But you see, when Paul exhorts us to continual, ceaseless prayer, he's focusing not so much on a constant speaking of words, but on a consistent posture of heart. It's about a continual, ceaseless posture of prayer in the presence of God. There's this book called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a collection of teachings by a 17th century monk known as Brother Lawrence. He lived in a French monastery where he served in the kitchen as a simple cook. But it's because of his exemplary devotional and prayer life, travelers would, would come from afar seeking out Brother Lawrence's counsel. Now the main idea of the book is really about developing a discipline of living constantly and consciously in the presence of God. Brother Lawrence would say that if you want to do that, if you want to practice the presence of God, then you've got to erase those unhelpful ways in which we so neatly divide up our schedule. Well, our days are just too fragmented between work life and, 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 and then there's work time and then there's personal time and family time. And then we set aside prayer time, which is usually just a fraction of the whole, if at all. But Brother Lawrence's secret was very simple. He treated his day as an integrated whole lived out in a posture of prayer. He writes this, quote, The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees, end quote. One observer in the book noted how Brother Lawrence believed, quote, it was a serious mistake to think of our prayer time as being different from any other. Our actions should unite us with God when we are involved in our daily activities, just as our prayers unite us with him in our quiet devotions. When he, Brother Lawrence, wasn't in prayer, he felt practically the same way, end quote. You know, Paul made a very similar point here in, in, in chapter, f- uh, chapter 4, well, actually in, at the end of chapter 3. When he addressed Christian slaves and masters in the prior passage, he was reminding them not to serve by way of eye service. That is, don't just do good work when your boss is watching. Why? Because we know that the Lord God, our true boss, is always watching. So Paul's saying our work life ought to be shaped by the reality that we are always under the eyes of God. Well, friends, the same goes for our prayer life. Being continually steadfast in prayer doesn't mean constantly mumbling prayers under your breath. But it does mean a consistent posture of the heart where you're constantly and consciously living in the presence of God. Now, look back at verse 2. We're told to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we're to be praying steadfastly, we just saw that, and now here, watchfully. This idea of being watchful in prayer is to be alert, to be vigilant, to to always be ready to, to spring into prayer. Paul says something similar in Ephesians 6 when he's describing the Christian spiritual armor. He says the two offensive weapons that you can depend on when you're engaging in spiritual warfare is first the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and second, it's prayer. He says to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert. There's the word, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Keep alert. Be watchful. Anytime you feel the slightest urge to pray, give in to it. Don't resist. Martin Lloyd-Jones counsels us to, quote, always respond to every impulse to pray. Always obey such an impulse, end quote. Why? Because you know that urge is coming from the Spirit. It will never come from Satan. Satan will never urge you to pray to the Lord. But the Spirit will. The Spirit wants you praying so no matter what you're doing no matter how inconvenient it is never ever resist the impulse to pray and of course you know if you're driving you're on the freeway of course you can pray with your eyes open you can you can do it you know quickly and quietly in your heart but seriously this is a practical advice never resist the impulse to pray So we're to continue in prayer steadfastly, watchfully, and third, thankfully. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I think the key here is to be mindful to include within your prayer life a remembrance of answered prayers. I think we're so quick to bring to God every time we get on our knees, we're bringing to him new supplications, but at the same time, we're so quick to forget how he has already mercifully answered so many of our requests. So make a practice, not just of supplicating God, but of thanking him for his faithfulness in your prayer life. Now, so far in verse two, we've seen the command for prayer. Now, let's go to verse three, and we're gonna see the content of that prayer. What are we to be praying for? Well, Paul tells us something specific. He says to pray for opportunities in gospel proclamation. Look at verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So he's asking for the Colossian believers to be steadfast in praying for him, specifically praying for opportunities to share the gospel, or as he puts it, to declare the mystery of Christ. That's language he already used back in chapters 1 and 2. And we saw there how it was referring specifically to the inclusion of the Gentiles into the redeemed people of God. It was always a part of God's plan to include the Gentiles from the beginning, but as to how that was going to happen, how it was going to play out was a mystery in the Old Testament. But now, post- The cross, post-resurrection, the hope of glory is a hope available for Jew and Gentile through a common faith in the Lord Jesus. Now this idea of God opening up a door for the gospel is used by Paul elsewhere in the New Testament. And based on how he uses it here and in other places, this picture of God opening a door is not just about opportunities to evangelize, but it's also also about effectiveness, fruitfulness in that evangelism. This prayer for God to open doors is really a recognition of his sovereignty over salvation and how prayer truly is the most effective component of our evangelism. I think we often treat prayer as just this formality, it's just this courtesy to God, but covering our evangelism in prayer is really the most important step because no one gets saved Because of the logic of our argument or the eloquence of our words, people only get saved when the Lord opens up a door for the gospel to penetrate a dead heart of stone, transforming it into a beating heart of faith. There's this great story that Hudson Taylor tells. Uh, Many of you know that Hudson Taylor is... um, he was a 19th century missionary to china who founded china inland mission and he tells the story about a he tells a story about a, a mission station uh, that was particularly blessed in its effectiveness for the gospel far above others and and there wasn't really a discernible explanation for why this station was so fruitful since other stations and other missionaries were equally devoted, equally capable. Well, there was this time when Taylor was um, touring and, and, and traveling and speaking through England. And after a particular meeting, a man approached him asking him about that mission station. And he was asking very personal questions, asking about the welfare of of the missionary that was stationed there. And it turned out it was the man's former college roommate. And so this college roommate um, tells Hudson Taylor that for years, he has been committing himself to praying for his missionary friend and his gospel work every single day. Hudson Taylor said, then I knew the answer. Then he knew where the effectiveness for that mission station came from. It came from continual, steadfast, watchful prayer from the saints. So, church, let's make that practice. Let's make that practice of talking to God about people, praying. Steadfastly, for more opportunities to share the gospel and for more courage to step through those doors when God does open them. That's going to be one of our big emphases in our upcoming New Year's Day prayer services. Uh, if you, you, know, you read in your bulletin later, uh, we're going to be putting on two identical bilingual prayer services on New Year's Day one early morning, one late afternoon. Uh, and we're going to be praying for many things, but one thing we're going to be praying for is for more opportunities, praying for our gospel witness and outreach, praying for God to open up doors. And so we hope that all of you can, can join us on that day as we do pray for God to open up a door for the gospel among the people in our lives and in, in our, our larger community. So prayer talking to god about people that's going to be that that is one of the practices for us to prioritize as a church. Well it goes hand in hand with the next one with talking to people about god. That's the second practice to adopt. Talking to people about god. This obviously has to do with evangelism itself. Now if you go look, look in verse 4 again, Paul says besides opportunities in gospel proclamation, another thing I want you to pray for is clarity in gospel proclamation, not just the opportunity, but when, it, oh, when the opportunity comes, we need clarity. Look at verse 4. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So when it comes to talking to people about God, Paul acknowledges an obligation to not only speak the gospel, but to do so clearly. To take, to take that mystery of Christ in the gospel and to clarify it and to explain it in ways that even a child can understand. That really is the preacher's challenge, to preach the Word not just accurately, but clearly. Having sound theology, having exegetical skills is essential, but if you don't know how to clearly proclaim it, if you can't explain the biblical truth in the vernacular, in common speech, then C.S. Lewis would say that you either don't understand it yourself Or you don't believe it. You know, I'm all for studying theology. I'm all for pursuing advanced theological degrees, but if all your learning doesn't translate into common speech that's comprehensible to the common man, then really it's pointless. All that learning is just going to puff you up. Charles Spurgeon once commented on the state of the pulpit in his day, and this is one of those classic Spurgeon quotes. Christ said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Some preachers, however, put the food so high that neither sheep nor lambs can reach it. They seem to read the text, feed my giraffes. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's Spurgeon for you. We've got to remember that we're feeding sheep, we're feeding lambs. We've got to make it clear. Now Paul's exhortation to speak clearly is not just about avoiding highly technical terms or avoiding theological jargon in your preaching or teaching. Clarity is also about how you package the whole thing. If a sermon doesn't have a clear, overriding idea, if the preacher doesn't really even know where, what, what he, where he's going or what he's doing with it, then no one is edified. As they say, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. Our job is to preach laser sermons with a definite point. And not floodlight sermons that shine a lot of light everywhere, but can't cut to the heart like a laser can. And you know, it's not just just preachers and Sunday school teachers that need this kind of clarity. Every Christian who opens up his or her mouth to explain the Word of God or to proclaim the gospel needs to know how to make it clear. And so you might know the gospel personally, but do you know how to share it? And when you share it, does it come across like a floodlight shining light everywhere but landing nowhere? Or is your sharing of the gospel like a laser that God can use to cut people to the heart and and to, and to make an open door for the word? Now, if you need help in that, you need help in clarity, and being able to share the gospel like a laser, well, then I'm going to point you to Minister Henry and to Allison Wu, who is our deaconess over English outreach, because they're ready to resource you. That, that, that's one of their responsibilities is to resource you and to equip you, and they're going to also put on occasionally, they have something something's planned for the spring uh, to train you, to provide some training seminars to equip you to share the gospel with greater conviction and clarity. That's one of our values as a church is we want to equip, we want to train you to be able to speak God's word, to share God's gospel with conviction and clarity. So we talk to people about God. As we talk to people about God, we need to speak with clarity. Look here in verse 5. We also need to walk in wisdom. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. This is all about being wise with your words and actions, with your judgment and decisions, being careful to guard your gospel witness. Don't let your speech, don't let your conduct become a stumbling block for those outside of the kingdom of Christ. That's what it's saying. We've got to be wise with the way that we carry ourselves, with the way that we conduct ourselves in the public square, in our workplace, in our campus, in our commute, as we're driving on the freeway. It's true that the gospel frees us from excessive concern over our reputation, over how people view us. I mean, once we're secure in our identity in Christ, we are truly liberated from the fear of man. Praise God. That is a blessing of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that we should just simply ignore our reputation or to care less about how people view us. No, we still have to be wise in maintaining a respectable reputation because even though we're no longer representing ourselves, we are representing Christ and his gospel. Outsiders will look at your life, they will look at your doctrine to determine whether there is a compelling reason to follow you in following Christ. And that's why you've got to be in gospel community where you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are bold enough and loving enough to kindly admonish you with the word when you're not walking wisely. It's out of concern for your witness and for the name of Christ that you bear. So if you don't have anyone in your life Able to do that for you, to kindly admonish you to walk in wisdom, then it probably means that you are too detached from gospel community, and you need to dig deeper. You need to to dig deeper into community. Paul um, is encouraging us to live out our lives not in isolation, but in community. So I encourage you, if you don't have those relationships. Seek it out, maybe in a community group or family group in our church, finding an accountability partner, someone who is able to, to sharpen you and to encourage you to walk in wisdom. Paul goes on to tell us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Literally, he says, to buy up the time, or as some translations say, to redeem the time. It means to make the most out of your time, to make the best use of it. For what? Well, for evangelism, for reaching outsiders. So you've got to ask yourself, how are you using your time? I know everyone's busy, but no one has the excuse of not having enough time for evangelism. No one has ever had enough time for that. And, and, and don't try to argue that you're in a busy season of life right now and you just need to focus on your work or your studies because there's never going to be a convenient time for sharing the gospel. Paul says we've got to be ready in season or out, whether it's convenient or not, to preach the gospel, to preach the word. I love hearing stories from you all about how some of you are making the best use of the ordinary mundane time in your day to look for open doors to reach those who are outside of Christ, how some of you are making the best use of those brief minutes during drop-off or pickup time at your kid's school to just to get to know some of the other parents. Or you're making the best use of your lunch breaks, spending time with unbelieving colleagues. Or you're making the best use of those regular routines and errands in your day, purposely frequenting the same local stores and coffee shops, trying to build friendships with the workers and and with other patrons. And friends, if you haven't made that kind of a practice in your life, well then there's really no better time to start than now to redeem your time, to make the best use of it. Now in verse 6, Paul addresses the manner in which we speak to people about God. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious speech really is referring to attractive speech, compelling speech. That's what it means to have your speech seasoned with salt. I realize for for younger generations, uh, for your speech to be salty has like a completely different connotation now. It's more about saying something rude or or biting. I I think that's why it's important for us to recover the biblical form, the biblical idea of salty speech. Salt in ancient times uh, served as a preservative against rot and corruption. And it added flavor and taste to meals that were typically bland. So words that are salty, words that are seasoned with salt, according to the Bible, are words that draw people, attract people. Words that won't corrupt or rot, but rather words that build up and feed other people. If that's going to happen, well then, friends, our speech has to be saturated with gospel truth so that we know how we ought to answer people when they ask about the faith. Peter, Peter the apostle Peter, says something very similar in his first epistle. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So friends, I ask you, are you prepared to answer others, to give the reason for the gospel hope in you, and can you share your faith? Can you share it graciously, winsomely, with salt, with gentleness, with respect? If you're not sure if you can do that, if you don't know how to equip yourself to do that, well then I, I recommend a resource that we've been talking a lot about. It's called Christianity Explained. It's a workbook, not so much a workbook that you are to walk through with a non-believer. It's really a workbook for you, for you to read yourself and to internalize. And it's going to equip you on how you can read through the gospel of Mark with someone else. And at the same time, as you're, as you're naturally reading through it, you can be able to highlight basic truths of the gospel as you're going through the book. And so if you're interested, uh, you can go to our bookstall after the service in the fellowship hall, and there are some copies there that you can obtain. And just equip yourself over the holiday break and really make a goal for next year to utilize that resource and sharing the gospel with someone in your life. So we've been talking about how to become a, a compelling attractive church in the right way, the gospel way, and we've said we've got to adopt the practices of talking to God about people, prayer, and talking to people about God, evangelism. Lastly, Paul exhorts us in verses 7 to 18 to to reach people with people, and that means relying not just on our solo efforts of evangelism, but really relying on our church community to reach people with people. I think that's one of the most notable aspects of the closing sections of Paul's letters. It, they're always filled with a bunch of greetings to people that you've, you've mostly never heard of. And, and it goes to show how dependent Paul was on other people in order to complete his missions. You remember, this is the mighty Apostle Paul who planted dozens of churches, who wrote practically half of the books in the New Testament. And yet, behind every Paul is a host of faithful servants you've never heard of. We don't have time, obviously, to go verse by verse and into the backstory of each person mentioned here. So I'm just going to highlight three observations from this final greeting section of the letter. First, recognize that reaching people for the gospel will call for some people to serve out of the spotlight. You're going to have to serve out of the spotlight. Antiochus is a good example of that in verse 7. Many of you have probably never heard that name before. You don't know who this guy is, even though Paul mentions him in four of his letters. So he, he's named. He's there But we easily overlook him. Now based on those other references and this one, we learn that he was the letter carrier for Colossians, Ephesians, and the letter to Philemon. He was the letter carrier. That was his role. He was the mailman. And yet, for Paul to call him a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord affirms that within the economy of God, the man who delivered Colossians is just as important as the man who wrote it. What use would there be in Paul writing a letter if it never got delivered? Maybe you've heard this proverb before For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the battle was lost. For the failure of battle, the kingdom was lost, all for the want of a horseshoe nail. The point there is that every little thing counts. And in the economy of God, every role, even little roles count. Even the seemingly ordinary can make a tremendous difference. I know everyone wants to be a Paul. Everyone wants to make a Paul-like difference in the kingdom of God, but the reality is all of us are more like Tychicus. And we might be able to make a Tychicus-like difference, but that difference is just as important for the cause of Christ. Second, recognize that reaching people for the gospel will involve some people we would have least expected. Just consider Onesimus in verse 9. He's the runaway slave that the book of Philemon is all about. Now, when we're introduced to him in Philemon, in the New Testament, he's, he's already converted. He's a believer. He's a beloved brother in Christ. And so we see him that way, rightly so. But don't forget, he was a runaway slave. He would have been viewed in his day as a criminal, as a lawbreaker, as someone on the run. No one would have expected a guy like Onesimus that he could be useful for the cause of Christ. But that's what the name Onesimus means. It means useful. And Paul now sees, because of Anisimus coming to faith in Christ, having his identity hidden in Christ, now Paul sees his true use. And considering his own past, Paul would have been the first guy to say that your past doesn't have to define your future and your future usefulness to God, all because of the grace of God in the gospel. Third, recognize that reaching people for the gospel will include some people who have failed miserably. And Mark is that example in verse 10. This is likely the Mark who deserted Paul and Barnabas during their first missionary journey. He failed miserably. He let the team down. And that's why Paul was hesitant to rely on Mark for their next journey. And it led to a falling out between Paul and Barnabas. But apparently, by the time Paul was writing to the Colossians, there has been a reconciliation and a restoration of Mark to the gospel ministry. In fact, in what was likely Paul's last letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he asks for Timothy to bring Mark to visit him while he's in prison, awaiting his execution, because Paul says, He, Mark, is very useful to me for ministry. That is a beautiful witness of the transforming power of the gospel to take our past failures and to to forgive them and to transform us to make us still useful to his kingdom. Friends, I know it's tempting to just breeze over the last few verses in Paul's letters because, you know, they always seem to end with just seemingly random greetings to a bunch of people we don't know. But this is really what sticks out to me, especially in letters like this where he's actually writing from prison. Here we have a man in chains, unjustly imprisoned. So if anyone has an excuse to just be thinking about himself, just throwing himself a pity party, it would be someone like Paul. If anyone had a reason to be self-absorbed It would be Paul. And yet here he is taking the time at the end of his letter to greet those who have shared in his suffering and in his labor for the cause of Christ. The point is, is that Paul is a man who loves and values his friendships. May the Lord do the same in our hearts, helping us to prioritize and value the friends and the fellow servants in our lives who are committed to the cause of Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this letter to the Colossians. We thank you for the weeks that we were able to spend studying this letter, hearing from you, from your spirit as he speaks through your word. And now I pray that we may come away with our hearts stirred up with great affection for Christ in the gospel and with our lives committed to be centered on the gospel, that our life as a church may be centered on the gospel. May you make our church so attractive, so compelling for the sake of the gospel in our community, in our city, in this world. We pray All of this, in Jesus' name,
0: amen.